Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And good evening and welcome to the show. You are on the Road to Recovery with Yona Bud. I will be your host this evening along with Devon and Corey. So tonight we got a lot of stuff to do. Busy show, a couple of guests. Uh, stay with us. You know, it, I wonder if there's something about the fact that the addiction and mental health guy is followed by the couch potatoes, which, by the way, is a great show. Um, followed by the couch potatoes. So I guess you get, like, really baked and, like, you're sitting on the couch and then maybe you listen to the mental health and addiction guy and try to kind of rethink your life as to, oh, really? Should I really be getting stoned on a Saturday night at 9 o'clock? Well, listen, I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to help and listen and be a part of whatever I can do to make a little difference in people's lives day by day. So we'd love you to just stick with us. We know you have choices, and we appreciate that you chose us. You know, speaking of making choices, you know, young kids feel very unlucky today. You know, young, the young Canadians, young generation, not just kids, young, the young generation of Canadians are just feeling really unlucky. Unlucky, you know, they're plagued by climate change and soaring home prices, all kinds of economic inequality and poverty, and you know, which we all had all that before anyway. But they don't necessarily like the path that Canada's on, and they cite the baby boomer generation as the root cause of disparity and division in Canadian society today. So Angus Reid, the institute, they you know the survey folks, they did a survey of young Canadian leaders and found that almost half of the respondents thought that the answer to Canadians' woes relied not on fixing the past mistakes in previous generations, but rather starting anew with a complete restructuring of Canadian society. So I like the concept of starting anew. That's what we believe in here on this show. We believe in, you know, fresh day, new day. Today's the day that matters. Tomorrow's a new day, right? Today's the day that counts in a mindful kind of way. So mindfulness is all about staying in the moment. But the uh, the study asked um, Canadians of all ages to self-report and do they consider themselves leaders in their community, you know, to incite change in their community through volunteering, uh, political involvement, that kind of stuff. So these self-identified young leaders, all under the age of 40, they were likely to prioritize the common good and the general belief that what's good for society holds more of importance than a person's individual rights and freedoms. I'm not a political guy. I'm not sure if that sounds right politically, but certainly sounds right, you know, ethically and morally, right? So according to this generational split, the younger leaders also reported higher educational levels and slightly more personal wealth than the non-leaders. So to be found more and more diverse, and they were also found to be more and more diverse than their older counterparts in terms of race and gender. So more people of color, more, you know, more, you know, more women likely in the, in the split versus men. I believe that's still the gender count today. Uh, most young leaders agree that uh, there's a legacy of baby boomer generation, not be the legacy at all, right? It might just be this, this thing that we, we, we're not happy about. So the young leaders under 40 say that the baby boomer's legacy is negative, and the majority of the people over 55 uh, say that uh, the legacy that they're leaving behind is positive. Baby boomers came in age of what they call an optimistic time in our, in our lives, uh, feeling like things were getting better. They had some taste, at least from their parents, like no, from my parents for sure, uh, if not themselves, how bad things can be. You know, so we, if you're older, you had a chance to live through a life with parents who might have gone through a depression or recession. Um, this new generation, not so much. So younger generations, however, are optimistic that the millennial generation will leave behind a more positive legacy than the boomers. But on the flip side of the equation, older generations don't have much faith. Half of those over 40 think millennials will leave the world in worse shape than they got it, right? Top, top issues in the world, reconciliation, while older leaders think 
reporting, you know, leaders being reported being more concerned about inflation and balancing money and budgets and things. <clears throat> so there's this um, this fellow, his name is Dr. Curl, and he points out that Canada's at an inflection point. So they're very focused on what's wrong, right? So he says, I think it may be a time at where we're too focused on things that are going wrong and may not be reflecting enough on the things that are going right. Absolutely right. So here is where I jump in with this cognitive behavioral therapy pitch and say, see it through positive lenses. You know, you got to take from the day, whoever you are, millennial or not, baby boomer or not, it's important to take from the day, from the moment, the best you got. It's easy to find the worst stuff, the stuff that's, you know, yucky about the day, but you got to find the positive stuff, the sunshine, if you will, in the dark clouds. So let's focus on all the things we're doing right and concentrate on trying to fix some of the things we're doing wrong, but not drag ourselves down with it in terms of a world of despair. Because when you live in a world of despair, young or old, you don't really have much motivation to get out of bed. So if the world's coming to an end, if you will, and we're and, and all the clouds are going to be gone and there's no ozone later left and we're not the sun's going to burn us up or whatever people are talking about, you're not motivated to get up and go do anything. So focus on the qualities, the opportunities, the fact that science is so amazing today. Medicine is so amazing today and getting better research. You know, world leaders in research and development around uh, all kinds of, of new medicines and therapy uh, uh, opportunities and modalities are all sharing worldwide with worldwide leaders and, and, you know, just by clicking on a Zoom button, if you will. So we're in a great place in terms of being able to share. But a lot of people feel very unlucky. About 40% of all leaders and their counterparts aged 40 and under say that their generation has lacked opportunity. Now I'm standing back and I'm thinking to myself, lack of, I've only got a few minutes left. We could go on with this forever. But lack of opportunity? Come on, man. The last couple of decades, there's nothing but opportunity. People have become famous on YouTube by shooting a video in their dining room or their bathroom or their outside in the backyard. And as it should be, by the way. There was a time where you'd have to spend fortunes of money to get into a production studio to show your talent, to show your, your, your skills. I think there's been all kinds of help, all kinds of opportunity. Maybe this 40 and under group were just a little bit too pampered when they were growing up. I think there's more multimillionaire millennials, young, younger generation under 40. I think there's more of those today than there ever was. Or maybe, you know, since the dot-com era, however long that ago was, however long ago that was, excuse me. So three-quarters of the leaders age 40 and under agree that white people benefit from social opportunities not given to visible minorities. Well, I think today we're finding more and more opportunities for visible minorities, and I certainly see that on the rise. Things are certainly getting better. So the older generations that were surveyed feel most lucky in terms of overall quality of life. The younger cohorts feel fortunate when it comes to social acceptance and freedom. It's more acceptable today, for example, to be gay. It's more acceptable today to be uh, a woman in an executive role. And, and, and by the way, as it should be, should have been a long time ago. But it is where we are today. So I think that those negative kids that think that the world's not worth living and that, you know, it sucks to be a Canadian and all that kind of stuff really need to give it a rethink and figure out where the world might be better, a better opportunity, a better place to go. Because I'll tell you, I've been, a lot, I've been to a lot of places, talked to a lot of people, been to many countries, and Canada still seems to be the best place for opportunity, growth, develop, develop, development, social acceptance, and so on. So while they may be a little, uh, a little bit you know, bruised, this is a great place to live, and I hope people get their heads around that and do what they can to make it even a better country and a better society for our children and grandchildren for the years to come. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. 
You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. You've got Yona here in the studio on Road to Recovery. You know, the thing around food, I don't know how you grew up. I grew up in a house where, you know, basically my mother would say, you should eat that because you'll like it or you should taste it because it's good. Um, my children have been raised and my grandchildren raised and certainly in my house when they're here are, ch- are raised by, um, by my beautiful bride and, uh, everyone's mother and grandmother. We, uh, they're raised such that you can try something. If you don't like it, you don't have to eat it, but you gotta at least try it. Food is a big deal. I see a lot of patients with food related issues that turn out to, uh, lead their way some often to other forms of substance issues and concerns and around uh, mental health and around uh, confidence and so on. We have an expert on with us tonight. Her name is Ola uh, Pabjas, and she's a registered dietitian. Thank you, Ola, for joining us. Thank, I appreciate you uh, staying up. And, well, it's not so late, right? It's, it's only after 9, so glad you could come. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Yona. Nice to talk to you. A pleasure. So let's get to it. Um, you know, we're, the, the, the concept is, and I'm, you know, I'm sure in your job as a dietitian, you deal with it all the time. You know, parents want their kids to eat everything. Kids certainly don't like certain things they don't like. And there becomes a tug of war at dinner. And then at the end of the day, the kid eats nothing and the parents run off angry and upset. And it's a disaster for everybody. And then no one wants to come to the dinner table. So, I mean, what really makes, uh, how do you really define the difference between a choosy eater, I suppose, and a picky eater? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, around like ages one to three, I feel like it's it's common to develop those sort of, you know, cautious tendencies um, with kids. And of course, they can last longer. Um, But yeah, the difference between just, you know, picky eating where, you know, it's, it's kind of like a phase, so to speak, um, and something more serious, which, you know, um, is there's not like an official name for it, but it's more of like an extreme food aversion, which right. is when, you know, kids only eat like a small variety of foods, um, is that, uh, you know, the extreme food aversion can actually come with serious nutritional risks and some kids even end up in the hospital. So not to scare anyone, but it is something just to um, be aware of. And I think, and, and like eating per se, or, or sort of quote unquote, forcing your kids to eat or restricting what they eat often leads to bad stuff. You see that in your practice as well? Yeah. Well, I mean, I heard what you were saying about how you grew up and it's, it's similar to how a lot of us grew up. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I also wasn't allowed to leave the table if I didn't finish everything on my plate. So, exactly. um, so today I feel like there's just a lot more research um, about um, just fostering healthier relationships with food in our children. Um, someone I wanted to bring up was Ellen Satter. She's a uh, registered dietitian and psychotherapist, and she's um, an internationally recognized expert on eating and feeding. Um, and she came up with something called the division of responsibility. And for those that don't know about it, it's essentially balancing parental leadership with child autonomy. So you're responsible as a parent for providing, you're responsible for what's available or what's offered to the child, whereas the child is responsible for when, where, how much, and whether they eat and how fast they eat. So it's a lot different from how we grew up. (laughs) Oh, I love it. My mother's 95. I'm wondering if it's too late for her to read it. But uh, (laughs) yeah, you know, it's, um, that's amazing. What's the name of the book again? Um, well, the the woman is Ellen Satter, and she has a research institute. Um, and okay. she, if you Google her name, you'll find it. It's the first one that pick, uh, pops up. Um, but let me uh, bring up her name here uh, just so I can. She's got a, uh, a great book. Um, she's actually kind of got a few of them. But, yeah. Um, what, what was the name of that book in particular? Um, so it is... Uh, 
there's Secrets of Feeding a Healthy Family, and there's also uh, Child of Mine. That one's really famous. Cool. Very good. So let's move on then. That, that, I just, it's nice to know that people can have, find a resource because eating is, you know, eating the, around the dinner table, uh, it's always a, a, a point of, uh, of discussion or aggravation or argument or, you know, steaming, you know, storming away from the table if something doesn't turn out right or, you know, telling your kid if they eat that, they can get their treats with all the sugar in it. I, I, and I know we're not doing it well because I see a lot of those kids now that they're mid-aged adults and even as teenagers, and it's part of the work we do when we're dealing with, you know, substance abuse issues issues and mental health issues. So um, how do you, here's a question that everyone seems to ask, how do I get my kid to try new things? Like how do you, you know, my wife kind of, you know, makes it fun for my grandkids, my older kids, they just try it just to try it, but um, they're adults, they, they can make their own decisions. But even our young guys, that our grandchildren who are, you know, young, um, you know, my, my wife works with them in a way that, you know, makes it fun to engage in trying something new and compares it to other things they've eaten. But I mean, in, in, in a real way, how do you get your kid to try something new? Those are really great strategies. I mean, I feel like at the dinner table, you know, focus on the mealtime experience rather than the particular details of what kids are eating. So use yeah. it as an opportunity to learn, interact with them. Um, they're, they're, they're really learning their environment. So let them experience their food and, and you know, join them when they're eating and make it, make it a positive experience. Um, but some more practical information would be a lot of people are surprised to know that it can take up to 10 exposures to a food to develop an interest in trying it. And then it takes up to 10 tries of that food to even develop a liking for it. So it's just a normal process of adapting to new foods. So just be patient. Don't give up. Keep offering. Eventually, someone will reach out and try it. You have kids? I do not have kids. Okay, you have like kids in your life, like uh, friends' kids or you know relatives' yeah, kids. Yeah, I have, have you I have experienced. You've experienced actual dinner time with little children. Oh, definitely. It can be really stressful and frustrating. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, how do you make that more fun? How do you, how do you like, you know, how do you turn dinner time and, you know, rather, you know, how do you turn dinner time into, into fun time? You know, like um, one of the things that we do, like we were, we're, we're Jewish and our faith is Jewish. And uh, we, we, uh, during Passover, we're close to Easter time. We have these big meals, they're called seders. And it's basically around telling stories to kids. So how do you keep the kids at this table for two, three hours? The trick is give them little toys and little treats and things that jump up and down and, you know, little, you know, squishy toys and so on. But really, that's set up for something just to keep them quiet. But in real terms, <laughs> you can't really turn dinner time into like a time at the park, can you? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to engage them for that long. You can't expect them to sit at the dinner table like adults do uh, for that long. Um, but, you know, you brought up some good things, getting them involved in preparation, um, shopping. Oh, like, that's a good one. Let's, that's a good let's one. go grocery shopping and you pick out, you know, this yeah. cool looking vegetable. We can make it together. That can get them engaged. Amazing. Amazing. Um, you know, it seems to be things like vegetables and the healthy stuff that kids seem to turn away from before they're even um, before they're even actually, you know, tasting them. Is there something around the parents, you know, the way parents say, you know, you should eat your vegetables because they're really good for you? Is there something around the really good for you that turns them off and, and, and changes their palate to say, yuck, I don't want any of that if it's good for me? Yeah, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, that's just human nature, right? But um, yeah, exactly. I mean... You know, kids have sensory issues. They're really sensitive, not so much sensory issues, but they're just sensitive to those new textures. And, um, you know, some kids prefer cooked vegetables, others like them raw. So 
it really just boils down to them experiencing these new sensations. Um, but I, I like to remind parents, you know, avoid any sort of pressure and also, you know, try to avoid negative and positive feedback. Just keep it neutral. Try to take the focus off of food and just, you know, make it more of an experience and a time for connection with the family rather than, you know, you should eat that or good job, you ate that. Just try and steer away from that because it just can get a little bit too, too much pressure. Here's, here's one for you that I thought you might find interesting. What if you have a, let, okay, let, we'll just, we'll just take the standard family, you know, the normal, you know, beaver cleaver family unit, mother, father, a couple of kids, right? What, what if, what if dad, you know, mom's trying to get the kids to, uh, I know I'm breaking all kinds of things here by doing it like this, but it is what it is. It's an easy example. So mom's taking care of the family, providing the food and dad decide, you know, dad, there's things that dad doesn't like. How do you get your kids to eat stuff if one of the parents has an issue? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge thing is we, we learn by observing as kids and, you know, you got to set a good example and it's not always easy, but, um, you know, it can be a family activity to try and find meals that everyone can enjoy, but also um, are good for us. So, um, yeah, it, you do need to lead by example. So got to be some flexibility there, too. Amazing. Uh, before we get uh, stuck for time here, how do people get a hold of you if they're looking to uh, talk to a dietitian? Yeah, um, so I, um, I'm i on Jan Nutrition, um, and there's lots of different professionals there, um, a lot of dietitians, but I am there, and you can find me there. It's uh, jmnutrition.com. Um, uh, excellent. Uh, and you'll come back some other time when we're talking about food-related stuff. We'd love to have you, and an excellent guest, by the way. So I would love to. Thanks so much. Uh, okay, one really, one real quick. Uh, we got about a minute left before we have to go to break. Um, real quick question: How do you know if your kid's not getting enough nutrients? Like parents are concerned about whether their kids are eating enough or not eating enough. How do you really know, other than your annual uh, checkup? Yeah. So um, some things to pay attention to would be, you know, are they losing weight? Are they always tired? Um, are they avoiding entire food groups? Those are kind of like little red flags. The other thing is um, you could check out the SOS Approach to Feeding. It's a seven-question questionnaire online uh, by Dr. K.A. Tumey, um, and that kind of helps you differentiate between is it just picky eating or is this problem feeding? Well, I got to tell you, I really appreciate you joining us tonight. Uh, it's fun talking to you. I hope we get to do more of it about more stuff related to food and what's happening with our kids around what we eat. Because I think what we eat has, a, well, I don't think, I know what we have, what we eat has a lot to do with what goes on inside in terms of mental health, not just physical health. So we should be working together at some level. At least we can do it on the air, if nothing else. Thank you, Ola Pub, just for joining us tonight. We'll be right back. Yonabud, 640 Toronto. Now. Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues only on 640 Toronto. Okay, everybody back on the bus. We had a chance to go use the bathroom, get yourself a snack, buckle in and make sure you're safe and pay attention. Thank you for joining me. This is Yona Bud here and 640 Toronto. We're in the studio with Devon and Corey, and we thank you for joining us and being a part of the show. Uh, we want to talk about this new thing, this great resignation. Uh, should come as no surprise, right? It's long overdue. Um, people are equipping themselves, the talent warriors, they say, equipping themselves with trendy workplace perks from beer, 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 beer on tap to mediation boost and so on. People don't want that anymore. They're, they're looking for different things uh, in their employment. 
Um, and a lot of people are leaving if, in fact, uh, they're not getting what they want. Seventy-six percent of the study of the respondents in this particular study says that mental health symptoms are not necessarily the cause of them leaving. Um, the great, it's a reflection on the changing of values. Uh, we have a guest joining us this evening. She's a friend of the show and uh, just a wonderful guest. Her name is Paula Allen. Paula, thank you for joining us again this evening. Always a pleasure. Yeah, man. Um, so what's going on out there? This, uh, this, this resignation trail thing, it's, uh, we're hearing about it all the time. Uh, from your perspective, I know you help organizations. You are the global leader and senior vice president of research and, and research and total well-being in an organization called LifeWorks, and you help employers uh, improve the lives of their employees. What's going on? What are you, what are you hearing and what are you seeing? And give us a, a taste of what's happening. Well, we we actually saw signs of this emerging uh, way back in the in the in the summer of 2020. So, you know, we've been talking about it a lot in 2021, but the seeds started well before. And you know what we what we saw is that people were just starting to feel exhausted. I mean, this the pandemic has really been the tipping point for a number of people, and you're having to deal with so much. There's change, there's uncertainty, uh, there's there's many practical things that you have to figure out that you didn't before, and that's on top of everything else that everyone is always dealing with and had been dealing with before. So that level of exhaustion was fairly significant, and people really started to evaluate. How am I going to get out of this? You know, what do I do to support myself? But also, do I need to do something to change my environment? So the seeds of this and the consideration of resign, resigning have been really in our minds for about a year. 76% of the, stu- of the people in this study go on to say, uh, Paula, that um, 36% of them, uh, excuse me, 76% sh- uh, shared at least one symptom of mental health, 36% um, Symptoms that have culminated over the last five to 12 months, uh, they're finding that they're declining, uh, their mental health is declining. 2.7% times uh, were, were more, two, they, the, their mental health were 2.7 times more likely to be satisfied with their jobs, people who are supported by their employers. What are employers doing to reverse this thing? I know we, t- we did a show a while ago on something called Stay Interviews. I think we did it a couple of weeks ago. And this whole thing about stay interviews and kind of sitting down with your staff and, you know, finding out why they want to stay there as opposed to why they want to leave. Is this really a thing? Uh, that That is something that people are, are, are doing. There's a number of things that employers are contemplating. But really at the core of it, we have very basic human needs. You know, you need to feel value. You need to feel recognized for what you're doing. You really need to feel that the environment that you're in is one that really does care about your well-being. Like when you're when you're thinking about the you know very basic things, nobody wants to be in a culture or around other people who do don't care about them or don't care whether they're strong or weak or 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 where they feel afraid to be themselves. Nobody wants to be in a situation where you're working hard and all of us have been working hard. Like even if the complexity of our work hasn't changed over this pandemic, everything is harder uh, to to get accomplished. And and, and that has been a drain on people. So the need for recognition, the need to feel validated is higher than it's ever been. So these are very fundamental things that are causing people to reevaluate. Yeah, there's a, the article goes on to say that it's more of a reflection of changing values, exactly what you're mm-hmm. saying. People, people are starting to recognize that, you know, I could work somewhere else. And, you know, I, I even have a, I have a couple of patients that have made, made some changes in their employment. And I got a couple that are actually working, um, making a little less money, 
but moved out of the city and their cost of living is significantly less. So at the end of the day, they have more disposable income, more money left at the end of the month. Um, so they're realizing that the value of, you know, being downtown and rushing to work and so on uh, for the extra, you know, hundred bucks a week, for example, may not be worth it. Um, is this something you said that this is kind of happening prior to the pandemic, but I think now uh, maybe it's exasperated because we have this work at home model uh, that some people are gravitating to and, um, they're realizing they can work from, you know, Perry Sound and still get the job done. Yeah, well, what the pandemic has done is it sort of um, accelerated a lot of opportunities, but it's also, I think, and this is the thing that's really made the difference, it's had people um, in a state where your your normal busyness wasn't there. You know, you might be busy, you might be doing work, but you don't have the same distractions that you did because we were locked down for a period of time. So there's really some opportunity to think. And I've heard many people say in different words, it almost feels like there's been, you know, months and months where that we've lost, like it hasn't been the way that we wanted to curate our lives. And when you have that feeling that you might have missed some time, you know, whether rightly or wrongly, way, a way to look at it. But when you have that feeling, you don't want to miss any more. You really want to make sure that the, the months going forward and the years going forward are the way that you want them to be as much and to the extent possible. So your job is working with employers for the most part, correct? It is. And the okay. work that we do actually supports employees and their families. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but employers so are the ones who hire us. Okay. So what are you telling employers in, in 2021? Here we are in October 2021. It's almost, by the way, it's almost Halloween. I hope you have your costume. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a week away, you know. Um, but um, the, uh, what, what do you, what, give, me, give me sort of the top four or five tips that uh, employers that might be listening um, can start looking at maybe implementing in their workplace. Sure. There's a few things, but they really fit into two big buckets. You know, one is, um, you know, people do need support and, and employers have the ability to to get, you know, enable resources. There's benefits, there's programs, you know, when, when everybody has a difficult time at some point in time and these services are really meaningful. So support with addiction, support with mental health issues, support with family contract, uh, con conflict, uh, practical supports, you know, uh, uh, financial consultations, like all of these things are really meaningful. So the first bucket is make sure that you have the extent that you can those services and that you communicate them so your employees know about them. The other bucket is what we're talking about, uh, what we were talking about just recently, which is people have basic human needs in terms of the environment that they're in and how they spend their time. So focus on that. You know, make sure that people do feel valued. Like, why would you have somebody in your organization if they're not valued? But sometimes we take people for granted. Train yeah. your managers. You know, people need to um, have a managers that support that culture of well-being, you know, know how to step in when things are difficult, but also create a space that's psychologically safe. And, and all of these things, you know, there's the, the mental health days, there's mental health weeks that some organizations are, are shutting down. I have no issue with that at all, as long as it's not the only thing. It's a wonderful way to show that you care, but it's not, it can't be the only thing because that day, that week will go away pretty fast if you don't, if you don't focus on the other two, uh, two things, your culture and your services. Yeah, I remember when I was at another network, they have something called Let's Talk Day. Uh, I won't use their name. 
and uh, they have a Let's Talk Day, but uh, I think four or five days after Let's Talk Day, they ushered about 400 people out of the building. Um, so, you know, it's you kind of just wonder, you know, where it's worth where the investment in. But, it, you know, companies need to understand that it's worth the investment, right? And, and many of them may actually have services or funds available in their in their uh, in their support or in their in their perk program or their their um, benefit program, if you will. Uh, to, to to get people the help that they need, most don't realize that this is something that's probably built into their into their investment anyway. And if not, it probably should be right. Without question, and and it, and it does benefit the employer as well. So you know, when people feel their best, when people know that they have support if they have a difficult time, then their productivity goes up as well. It has yeah. to, yeah. like what you know. Yeah. When you when you are feeling um, supported. Uh, the ability for you to do more and do better is significant. And we've actually found that people's sense of belonging goes up. And with that sense of belonging, so does measurable productivity. You know, one thing we say to, uh, I say to all my patients as it relates to relationships, uh, I tell them all the time, I'm sure this is something familiar to you. If you're in a relationship that doesn't make you feel good about yourself, you probably shouldn't be in that relationship. Um, One would say the same thing about work. If you're on a job, uh, working a job. And listen, not everybody can listen. Don't get me wrong. We have a, you know thousands and thousands of listeners. Lots of people, you know, are are in a situation where they really can't uh, afford to make the move at this time. Maybe we're giving them some some information to think about right now, but can't really. So a lot of people are kind of stuck, if you will, where they are. Um, but you know, what what can someone do uh, in a work environment where you know it may not be set up for their for their wellness, but they're kind of stuck there because they need the, they need the paycheck. Uh, what can an employer or an employee do in, in an environment like that? Well, I think very similar to the, a relationship. You know, sometimes we have overwhelming feelings that things are not good, and, and it feels overwhelming because you haven't identified what it is that's making you feel that way. So I would pause and really try to pinpoint what it is that's making you feel uncomfortable, what it is that's making you feel like you're not being supported. The more you can identify what that is, more there's an opportunity to have a conversation if a conversation is possible with your with your 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 supervisor or to to really get some coaching on how to deal with the situation a little bit differently so again almost nothing almost no situations are all good or all bad but if you can focus on the things that are are positive but also identify the things that are problematic. You're more likely to be able to compartmentalize them. We're all also more likely to be able to solve problems, solve around them. And then as soon as you are able, unless you're able to resolve it, then I would take your other piece of advice. If you continue to feel that you are not doing well in an environment, then, then look for opportunities to change when that's possible. We're talking to Paula Allen. She's the global leader and senior vice president of research and total well-being at LifeWorks. Good friend of the show and just an excellent guest. Thank you so much for joining us, Paula. We will definitely have you on as we start to look at what this resignate this great resignation really looks like uh, as we get closer to uh, the holiday season. I'm sure there'll be stuff to have you come back and chat about. Plus, I want to get a chance to wish you happy holidays. So we'll definitely be talking <laughs> again, again really soon. Paula Allen, Global Leader, Senior Vice President at LifeWorks. If you're a business and you need some support, these are the folks you need to call uh, to get some advice on doing it the right way. We'll be right back. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. 
And welcome back. Thank you for joining us here on The Road to Recovery. We're going to be joined shortly here by our guest. Uh, we're talking about the impact of mental health on officer retention and what leaders can do to turn this tide around. If you heard what we were talking about earlier with Paula uh, uh, from uh, LifeWorks, we were talking about the retention of employees, uh, generally speaking. Uh, especially true over the last 18 months, the stress has had a terrible impact on civil uh, civil workers, including protest, you know, as a result of protesters and law enforcement issues and so on. There's a survey recently done that an overall 18% increase in the resignation, according to police officers, resignation in 2020 to 2021 compared to 2019, 20, and 20, uh, including an astonishing 45% increase in the retirement rate. Uh, and we're talking, this is compounding the issues of officer morale and mental health as fewer officers and less experienced officers are now dealing with increased pressure and responsibility. We're joined this evening with uh, by Crystal Jones. She's the president of Toronto Beyond the Blue. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening, Crystal. And uh, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate any opportunity to talk about our, the mental health of our members. So. Well, you're at the right place, and if, you, if you're not careful, you're going to end up on the list, and it's going to mean we're going to have you back on again. So if you like it too much, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to scoop you up and use you again. So try not to have so much fun, okay? I'll try my best. <laughs> okay. Uh, Crystal, tell us, start off by telling us a little bit about um, Toronto Beyond the Blue uh, or the organization Beyond Blue. Yeah, absolutely. So Toronto Beyond the Blue was founded in 2017 by myself and Dilnez Garda. Um, we were born on the back of a suicide. So Dell's brother, Darius Garda, died by suicide in uh, February of 2016. And, uh, you know, I had my own reasons for wanting this, but our focus has always been on family wellness and member wellness. And uh, we are a registered not-for-profit and we are a charitable organization with charitable status. So um, everything that we do, we look at uh, implementing programming that supports police service members and their families. Uh, we are constantly running campaigns that advocate for their mental health and normalize those conversations surrounding the stigmas that they face. Um, and we also run a very successful peer support program uh, that we're very proud of. And we're a sister chapter of um, another organization that I'm the, the vice president for, which is Canada Beyond the Blue. Um, because Toronto was so successful in our model, it caught on very quickly because it, was a, uh, it wasn't a unique need to just Toronto police families. It was a very much um, a Canada-wide need. Yeah, so sure. we have a number of chapters throughout Canada. Amazing. So um, go backwards a little bit, if you don't mind. Uh, the person who lost their lives to suicide, this was an officer? Yes, Darius was a Toronto police officer. And your experiences, you are or were a police officer or affected by someone who was a police officer? So my spouse is a current Toronto police officer. With, he's been with okay. the service for 24 years. Yep. Okay. And how's he doing? Or she doing? Uh, well, he's say. doing well. Yeah, he's doing well. He's, um, you know, he has definitely experienced, you know, the burnout and the operational stress. He was primary response um, for a number of years. So he he definitely um, got to experience the, the global pandemic on the front lines. Um, and, you know, his mental health did somewhat, uh, become impacted, but I will say a significant amount of burnout is what we were seeing um, with our members. Yeah, I was going to ask you what's happening with them, and you know, we, we people don't understand 
you know, I've been, uh, you know, not so much these days since the beginning of the pandemic, but I've been, you know, I've been on the street for over 40 years and uh, doing, uh, you know, doing the kind of work I do. And police officers uh, are a huge part of the work I do in terms of saving lives and finding missing kids and getting people off the off the street and into the help that they need. Uh, so I'm a big, big supporter of, of policing. Um, and I'm seeing with my friends, like I got a bunch of buddies that are in uniform, male and female, a bunch of people that are in uniform. And, and they're, you know, a lot of them are taking a little more leave time. A couple of friends of mine are taking some extended leave time. Um, they're just, you know, they're just tired of, you know, being spit at and yelled at and screamed at and, you know, you know, quote unquote, dumped on, um, you know, which I guess was part of the job maybe all along. But somehow during this pandemic and protesting and stuff, people think it's okay to to let their, you know, we have a lot of people, a lot of you know, citizens out there that are feeling, you know, miserable and they don't like their lives and they're, you know, especially during the lockdown periods. So they would dump on, you know, people like police officers and mailmen and mail people. Um, so mm-hmm. we're, I think your folks are seeing, you know, certainly my friends are seeing um, a harder day. It's just harder to get up to go to work every day because it's just it's not as much fun anymore. Yeah. And I, I want to say, you know, a lot of these in, incidents where they're being spit at and, and treated in a very inhumane way. Uh, it's not new to our <laughs> to our families. Uh, right. We are very much conscious that um you know, if you're a police officer or related to a police officer that, you know, we always get those questions that are very intrusive and inappropriate. And then a lot of the time people are always very quick to tell you about their worst experience they ever had uh, without, you know, self-reflection and appreciating, you know, how they could have contributed to that incident. But, um, you know, I, I feel like a lot of the stuff that we're seeing with the protests there's a lot of police officers who actually understand why, you know, small business owners are upset or um, different things like that. And it's really frustrating because they get caught between a rock and a hard place where they need to enforce um, the rules and the laws. But a lot of them feel for these people. And it's, um, it's definitely, you know, I think we're really going to start to see like a lot more moral injuries coming from coming out of this pandemic. Um, as well, also alongside post-traumatic stress and other operational stress injuries, but it's definitely uh, a very challenging time to be in law enforcement or really just any frontline worker. At the beginning of the pandemic, they were all heroes. And now, you know, with mandatory vaccines and things like that, and people saying that it's unconstitutional, um, there is a lot of villainizing now of police and, and other frontline workers. So it's it's very unfortunate. Uh, I treat and have treated uh, for years frontline workers, uh, mostly around their PTSD. Many drink too much or use other drugs to deal with injury issues and just never stop. Um, the post-traumatic stress related to a police officer, the average cop on the street these days responding to overdoses and these, the situation with uh, fentanyl and, and street drugs and so on, um, I know just from the few that I deal with that the, the, the level of post-traumatic stress as it relates to watching people die as a result of using bad drugs is just overwhelming. I have a couple of buddies of mine who've, you know, in the last year or so have, you know, attempt, attended at least a dozen where young people, you know, young enough, you know, young people have lost their lives due to some form of dirty drug overdose. 
Um, and, I, and, and just one of those situations is enough to end you, put you in therapy. What kind of support are we providing? And in the old days, cops used to be told, you know, my old-time coppers, the retired guys used to tell me, you know, you have a bad day at the office, you go home and you grab yourself a Mickey, you drink it off, and you come to work the next day. That's how they dealt with mental health back in the day. And I'm not, you know, throwing, you know, throwing uh, negative things at anybody here. But so what supports are now in place for these, these uh, men and women who are, you know, really – putting their lives on the line both physically, emotionally, and, and mentally uh, to try to get us, uh, to keep us in a safe place. What supports are in place that you're, that you're aware of, and are they actually working? Um, so it, this, this is always going to be um, kind of like a point of contention for, like for even just Toronto Police, because that is my, my scope that I really focus on. Um, yep. The service does have, uh, resources available to them. They have their wellness units. They have uh, um, their ESAP services. Uh, you know, there is some peer support groups. Internally within our organization, we have been successful because we are standalone and at arm's length. There is a significant amount of mistrust with police officers um, w- uh, towards the service. And uh, I don't know how confident they all are in the um, how helpful the resources that are being offered. And I know some of them worry that they're not confidential. And, you know, so we're, we're constantly combating, like, while these things exist, people are just not taking advantage of them because they don't right. trust the, the process. Ah, uh, there you go. There you go. Right. And we're constantly advocating, like, for me, I always say to members when they call our peer support line or they just connect directly, um, you know, we have vetted professionals on our website. And I always kind of, you know, take a brief understanding of what they're looking for and they need and recommend several different, you know, skilled professionals that we've vetted. And and it seems to be very effective. Um, So therapy is always one of the best things that we we offer. But then we also have our own in-house peer support. And I, I cannot stress for anyone who's listening, how valuable peer support is just as oh, a tool and a resource. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, these things exist. We're just really combating the, the whole mistrust and low morale of, of members. And, you know, my concerns always come because Toronto Police has experienced a number of, of suicides um, over the past few years. And we're always looking at ways that we can implement positive change by partnering with the service and the association um, that is, you know, based on empirical evidence that would support what we're trying to achieve. Right. And sometimes it's not received at all. Uh, It falls on deaf ears and we're still not seeing the appropriate changes be made. Um, But the message is we're always available to the members and we're always you know, ready to work and, and do, do what needs to be done uh, for their family and for their own mental health. So uh, first of all, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We're just running out of time. I want you to know that you should reach out to me if you wish to. Um, I would like to volunteer my services in some way um, and some of the reach that I have perhaps in the, in the world that might help you get some funding. So please feel free to reach out to me. I'd like to, to help in some way offline uh, moving forward. So love to, love to connect with you to do that. Uh, we're talking to Crystal Jones. She's the president of Toronto uh, Beyond the Blue. She's the uh, spouse of an uh, active police officer um, doing 
wonderful, wonderful, thankless work. Um, truly an angel. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, what you should do is get a hold of Beyond the Blue and uh, donate something. Give them some money. Send them 100 bucks. If everybody does that, they'll have tons of money. We can help our police officers and their families so they come home at the, the end of the day and don't feel like they want to jump off a bridge or hang themselves. You want about here, 640 Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yona Bud continues. Only on 640 Toronto. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Uh, this is Yona Bud. You're on the Road to Recovery. appreciate you uh, tuning in with us this evening. You know, when I was, uh, what was I, in fourth grade? Fourth grade. I'm not even sure how old I was. Maybe eight, seven, eight. I don't know how old you are in fourth grade. I don't remember. My wife would tell me if she was here. But she's not. She's in another part of the space. So anyway, um, I got the strap. Not once, not twice, but a bunch of times. And um, no doubt I probably deserved it uh, in terms of what I did in those days. I was just not a good kid uh, for most of my uh, growing, my years growing up until I, I found my way through later on in my life. It's another story, another time. But anyway, um, so I remember getting the strap and, you know, the first time it stung like crazy and my hands hurt it forever, hurt for the whole day, hurt it. My hands hurt for the whole day. Um, but you know, it was kind of a badge of honor amongst my buddies, you know, like I was the tough kid at school running around the playground and no one wanted to go near me because I just got the strap. So I got to be one of those bad kids. Right. Um, but after the second time, I just got pissed off. Didn't do anything to curb my, my, uh, anger, to curb my behavior, did nothing to help me at all. So there's something called Section 43 in our criminal code. It's been around since 1892. And what it says here is every school teacher, parent, or person standing in the place of a parent is justified in using force by way of correction towards a pupil or child, as the case may be, who is under his care, not, not, not their care, his care, so you know how old this is, if the force does not, uh, does not exceed what is reasonable under circumstances. Like, holy crap. What does that mean? Oddly, the purpose of Section 43 was not to protect a child, but to protect adults from being charged for assault or using physical force against children. Um, anyway, it goes on and on. This is for children between the ages of 2 and 12. Really? Like, there's a reason to hit a 2-year-old? It banned hitting children with objects. Well, that's great. Children can still be hit with hands, but not on the head. I guess keep their keep it away from their face. Evidence has shown there is absolutely no positive outcome, only negative outcome from physical punishment with kids. I read the article, wanted to throw up, and decided that we would talk about it tonight with our new friend. Her name is Ruth Miller. She was uh, she born was born and grew up in Toronto. She completed her Bachelor of Arts at the University of Toronto. Spent a year in Paris at the Sorbonne. She taught uh, high school uh, French and then uh, music and movement for young children. She then returned to Oise to complete her uh, master's in education, worked for the Toronto Public Health for 20 years as a sexual health educator. She's the author of three picture books for children, and she's currently working on another picture book. Her articles appear in the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail, as well as sexual health publications. Ruth, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, I'm sure when you look at this stuff and read about this stuff, it makes you want to throw up as well, right? <laughs> well... I'm way past that in terms of how I feel about all of this. And I just want to say, Yona, Good for you, you. you didn't deserve the strap no matter what you did. No one. Thank deserved. you. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Oh, my God, I can sleep tonight. I've been going through this for years. But, ser but seriously, this is still a thing on the books, and it's still allowed to continue, no, no, right? No, 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 no. First of all, yeah. um, 
no, teachers are not allowed to hit children anymore. You know, that, that, that ended a long time ago. Uh, but, you know, even though this law is in the books, you know, you will not find any school board, I hope, that says you can hit children and give, you know, and strap them. Look, I certainly remember that, and I'm a lot older than you, I think, Yona, and I certainly remember uh, kids getting the strap when I went to public school. I even remember one teacher putting, in grade three, putting a child over her knee and spanking this child in front of all of us. But all of that is, is long gone so, but but the law is still on the books, and right. I know what you were saying about uh, hitting, uh, not on, not hitting on the head, and so on. That that happened in 2004 because a challenge was brought, you know, against this law, but the Supreme Court upheld it. But it did say, okay, from now on, you can't hit a child under two, and you can't hit a child over 12. That's what you were you were referring to. Right, so what exactly. I what I say is okay. So the minute you turn two, you're fair game, you know, yeah, to be hit. Exactly. So uh, you know, but don't but but teachers are and certainly daycare workers. Nobody is supposed to be hitting children in those settings. So let me ask you something. The the work that you did over the years, and and you know uh, the work you know that you talk. They talk a lot about your work. Um, in uh, this organization that you're, that you're, you know, the work that you do and, and, and the books that you're publishing and so on. But, you know, that you're also mentioned in this article, right, in terms of, uh, of uh, your activities, right, in terms of something you were doing related to, uh, to helping children with this kind of stuff, I believe, right? No, no. No, I'm sorry. I've got, I've got, I've got I apologize. But you know what? It, but but what? But what it does have? What 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 we do have is that there's obviously you've been working with you know kids forever and ever. Um, your opinion as it relates to uh, this type of abuse, especially now that we're looking at reconciliation against, uh, you know, looking at all the, the things that we're finding with these uh, uh, unmarked graves for hundreds, if not mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of kids. Uh, mm-hmm. You can only imagine that the torture and the abuse was horrible in those days. Uh, you know, but let me take it. Let me take you to 2021, because you mm-hmm. said, no, it doesn't really happen. Kids, you know, parents aren't teachers aren't allowed to do this anymore. And I agree The parent, you know, you don't see teachers hitting children or, you know, smacking them or grabbing them by the hair or anything like that. Like I might have seen in the days and mm-hmm. you might have seen in the days mm-hmm. in school. Yeah. But I can tell you that, that teachers today, because I deal with kids, I deal with teenagers, uh, 13 to 20 uh, who are in crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, teachers today do a horrible job sometimes in terms of uh, being abusive verbally and emotionally. And kids right. being dressed down in class and being made to feel small and being stressed out that way. Um, you know, yeah. we're, we're, we're not past the abuse of children. We're just past maybe the physical abuse of children. What, well, what's your opinion of that? Okay, well, we're talking about schools now. And I agree that adults don't always know how to talk to kids. You're absolutely right. And words sting and words hurt and uh you know, I, I have to say, I imagine teachers are under a lot of stress, but I think good teachers and good schools now talk about trauma-informed teaching yes. and trauma-informed yes. counseling. You know, yes. we're making progress, uh, yes. you know, slowly on these things, and we know that if a kid does something inappropriate in school, it, 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 suspending that child isn't the answer. The answer is, can be saying to the child, did something happen at home today? 
or, you know, what's happening in your life or something. You know, instead of just coming down hard on kids, we need to look at what the child is 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 uh, experiencing in at home at home in yeah. in his or her life in other places i'll tell you something uh ruth now that i understand kind of your background a little bit better um i'd love to have you come back and we can talk about some of this uh some of the sort of sexual identification and identity type stuff that i'm personally wrestling with as a therapist trying to understand more so i can do a better job uh, but i'm sure parents are, are, are wrestling with it uh, big time as well w- would you be kind enough to come back and join us in kind of your uh putting on your other hat now as uh, from your days <laughs> well, of sexual education are you comfortable doing that well the problem is i've been retired for some years and i i must say when i was a sexual health educator we we really weren't dealing with issues around non-binary and trans, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. stuff like that. We we weren't dealing with those issues when I was working. But now my colleagues, uh, people who are still working in this field, I think, you know, you and I can talk maybe about who might be a better person to come on and talk about this. But I okay. think it, it is a really important thing to talk about. And, and I guess what I understand, and I think you do too, that attitudes about so many things are changing now, aren't they? Uh, I yeah. think we're, we're understanding. For example, you know, I have a gay son, and, uh, you know, he came out to us when he was 17, and uh, and I worried how his life would be. Well, he's now 54 years old. <laughs> and, li- and, and living like a champion, right? No yes, li- living a wonderful life. He has a partner and so on. So, you know, and all my friends who, you know, at the time didn't really know how to handle this. Everybody's yeah. cool now, okay? Amazing. Well, you're very cool, Ruth. I'm going to figure out a reason to get you back on the air because I just love talking to you. But my, my producer's screaming in my ear that I got to go to break now but uh okay. thank you so much for joining me and staying up so late to hang out um <laughs> and uh and we'll talk again i'm sure okay. i'm sure sometime soon as soon as we come back from break we're going to talk about some more stuff so uh, make sure you get a drink use the bathroom do what you got to do stretch your legs yonabud 640 toronto welcome back to road to recovery with yonabud only on 640 toronto Hey there, welcome back. This is Yona. You are on the road to recovery. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I read an article in uh, Toronto Life uh, recently, and it was about two guys, and their names are Paige and Gian. Gian, and uh, they are better known as the uh, uh, Megan brothers. And the these guys, since um, you know, I least 20 years uh they're the they were the go-to they are the go-to people for weddings and bar mitzvahs and sweet 16s and parties and graduations and you know uh um, retirement parties anything you know corporate stuff these guys put on an event that is second to none uh and i'm talking about you know like halftime quality stuff like from the nfl like halftime quality stuff great guests and so on And, and so i was reading the article about how they how they, you know, had to manage through their business. And these guys grew up in Toronto um, and, you know, kind of knew them when they were growing up as kids or knew stories about them and so on. You know, grew up in a kind of a, 
you know, difficult way. Their parents worked really hard, had some hard times when they were, uh, kids were young. Uh, father uh, used to take them to, uh, you know, was involved in the uh, wrestling game. Used to take them, they were, they used to sit with, you know, some of the biggest, uh, what, he said, what they were saying here, he used to sit on Andre the Giant's lap and hang out with the behemoth, the behemoths like Macho Man George, the Animal Steel, and Hulk Hogan. These guys, you know, built the entertainment business of the uh, last couple of decades uh, based on the experiences and, um, you know, the needs of their family when they were running out of, uh, of uh, you know, money coming in from dad's business, mom's business, and so on. So they had to go and get and, and start working. So they started doing everything they could, organizing parties and so on. That grew into a major, major business. As a matter of fact, like, you know, when I was, you know, any kid that would have a, a party in my community, I mean, the, the, the Megan brothers, it was, they, they were just, that's who you went to. They, they you know, Paige and Gian, they were the guys that put together parties. They had dancers and, you know, crazy stuff. Never dawned on me that all of a sudden this, you know, we're sitting in this pandemic. But what are they doing? So they're joining us tonight. I have both Paige and Gian. Thank you both for joining me tonight. Rare to get you on a Saturday night in the old days, that's for sure. <laughs> most definitely. That was probably the most epic, um, you know, introduction I've ever heard. And I've done a lot of introductions. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, I I'm a little older and been at it for a while. No, but you guys are like my heroes in in, in a non like a non uh, teenagey kind of way because all the kids and I work a lot with teenagers that you know in my practice over the forty years and you know you your guys just rock. You know, my granddaughter just came to spend Friday night with us for dinner and she was telling me how the Megan brothers um, they had a Halloween dance party at school, a virtual Halloween dance party at school, and you know it was kind of bizarre. She's nine and just loved it. So first of all, thanks for joining me, boys. Um, um, you know, you guys continue to rock and really be superstars in, in pretty much everything that you do. Um, the, the story really got to me, you know, in terms of how you spun this thing around and, you know, started to, to do, you know, funerals and other kinds of events, virtual events and, and parties. Um, and now I understand that's grown into like a really big deal. Uh, so kudos to both of you. Uh, I guess when you're down and out, though, man, you got to figure out where to find that next sucker punch, right? Yeah, you got to hulk up. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I do want to get back to the Andre the Giant because I met him at an airport once and he didn't want to talk to me at all. So oh, yeah. uh, I, I'm really happy that you got to sit on his lap. So tell me, give me, give us a little bit. We're really kind of try to help people out there understand how they can kind of spin on a dime. I hate the word pivot unless you're a basketball player, but uh, how do they kind of, how can you spin and do that 180 or 360 and suddenly turn your business into something uh, uh, even more spectacular than it was before the pandemic? How, how did sort of give us an idea of how the two of you were? staring at each other that time in the living room and going, okay, like, what are we doing next? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's been, first of all, thanks so much for having us. Um, we, we, we had no, you know, you can't, you couldn't, you couldn't bet a, a, your, your life. Even if you had the sports almanac from back to the future too, like you couldn't predict <laughs> yeah. what this was. And uh, you know, I can, I can reflect on it because it was literally, if I look back with clarity, it was literally the lowest point. You know, here everyone's thinking about themselves. You know, the pandemic, everyone's afraid. I remember, you know, my wife was like soaping apples, you know, and soaping oranges. And we had to throw out a knife because, it, like, it, was, it wasn't clean. My wife, my wife soaped a pineapple. That's how, you know, that's what we were like, dealing with. You know, everyone okay. was... Everyone okay, was my, wife, my wife is still spraying everything, by the way. I just want to jump in there. Okay, carry on. Sorry. You know, so so no one's got time to think about anything other than themselves. And for us, all we did was think about so many other people when it comes to pr providing joy and happiness 
um, and providing, you know, uh, a, a night to remember. And, you know, we, we had a, we had a, our 20th year in business. We had a, a, over a thousand events on the books going into 2020. Uh, and we had huge plans for, for a celebration. And we were, I would say we were living an abundant, you know, life of nonstop, go, 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 party, party, party. We would do 20, 30 events in a weekend sometimes. Uh, yeah. and, that was, and that was our version of normal, right? We, we didn't know uh, what, what pause was. Um, so while everyone was in a, somewhat of a catastrophic state, here we are literally on the verge of bankruptcy, literally on the verge of losing everything and clients all asking for their money back and cancellations. And for some odd reason, I mean, this is the lowest point I've ever had in my career. Yeah. For some odd reason, that lowest point didn't feel that low for us. Okay. Like, like it was like, I remember it was the second week of the pandemic and I was sitting on a Saturday night, which I knew I should have been working. Uh, I was sitting watching like coming to America with my children and I was eating Doritos. <laughs> and I was just like, I was just like, yeah, but yeah, let me jump in for a second. But you, you guys, when you were kids, when when your when your parents uh, hit some hard times, you know, you you know, like me, I went through that as a kid as well. Uh, was that wasn't that kind of a more difficult time to cope with than what you had to do now as an adult, or was it easier because you had nothing? Well, that was just it. That was just it. And I'll let you talk in a minute. But that was just it. Like, you know, that moment that was so bad for us. Well, yeah. it wasn't. It wasn't unfamiliar. It was it was another day for us. Meaning, you know, we have moments in our lives that we look back with reflection on it. And our whole lives have been a pandemic, as far as we're concer- concerned. <laughs> you know, we we, we 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 struggled, and we, you know, and I always say, you know, in order to taste sweet, you got to taste sour. You know, how, how do you 100%. know what? How do you know what good is if you don't know what bad is, right? And yeah, for for whatever reason, we we took it and. Uh, we again, we hawked up and we said we have no choice. And again, having no choice has been our whole lives. You know, the greatest gift our parents ever gave us was the gift of giving us nothing. You know, I want to I want to get to the sort of the what people would say the dark part of the story, but I don't think so. I think it's the bright part of the story. You know, virtual funerals. Um, you know, they're they're you know, unfortunately, I had to attend a whole bunch, but I also attended a whole bunch I would normally not have been able to attend. So, um, you know, the fact that you guys spun that way and were able to provide that kind of solution to, you know, people who were in need of being connected at, at that difficult time in their lives and then the, you know, whatever, whatever um, kinds of memorial services and, part, and, and, and gatherings they had after. Um, remarkable way to bring yourself back around at the same time doing good, but also finding your own feet and giving yourselves a little bit of a life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, never, never in a million years. If you had said it, in, in, in the year 2019, if you had said to me that in the year 2020, I would have gone from, you know, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs to funerals, you know, I would have said that that was the most 100 to one odds of all time. Exactly. You know, like it's just the last thing you could even you could even tell me where I would take it seriously, and so. You know, you can't take anything for granted, and for us to be able to have further purpose, you know, uh, towards the community that's been so good to us, um, we felt we felt it was like it was like an honor, you know, it, 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 and it, it really, it really it is an honor. It, yeah, it, it, it is an honor. honor, absolutely. 
And so, uh, you, you never would have thought. We got a little bit. We only got like a minute or so time. First of all, I'd love to know if you guys will come back some other time and just follow up with you on what cool things are happening. Yeah, but yeah, we, um, we got uh, go for like a corned beef sandwich or something. Yeah, man, saying. we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it with video, and we'll just we'll make it into something. Uh, I'm sure we can sell tickets. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but before before I let you go, what's on what's on the horizon for you guys? I I know you're going to kill it in 2021, 22. Uh, oh what what God. are some of the exciting things you got on the oh go in the last uh, minute or so? Maybe, maybe page, let's let's play ping pong right now so that we can both just. Okay, so all kinds of events are coming back in small, medium, and large. Just everyone's kind of inching their way back, but you know they're just different. But but like I said, it's it's almost like a Tesla version of a party, right? That's that's how we're going to be operating. Right. So events are going to be a lot more, you know, purposeful, um, and um, which is exciting. Paige, your turn. Uh, we just became the Canadian rights holders to something that is called Charity Buzz. Uh, Charity Buzz is a online platform for experiences um, where you donate towards uh, a cause and you can get the ability to golf with Obama, meet Elton John backstage at this show. If you love Springsteen, catch a ball by Tom Brady. Cool. I'm in. I want them all. It's the Yankee Stadium. Okay, who do I write the the check to? I want them all. Yeah, so that's going to be, you know, we believe, you know, experiential living. That'll that'll be the bar mitzvah. That'll be the bar mitzvah one day. I love it. I love it. Um, I love it. We've made we've made a video game and now uh, called Meat Sauce Madness. It's on uh, all all platforms, and now we're uh, we're involved with um, a couple of really big um, esports and gaming companies. One is called Wonder Gaming, and one is called Overactive Media, in which nice. we are uh, we are part of a, we're we're going to be part of a team that is um, going to build a seven thousand person arena uh, at the CNE in the next five years. For uh, video game tournaments, uh, it's going to oh be my God. You've amazing. Never seen before. We're very excited about that. You keep going. Uh, films. We're doing Jewish documentaries. Um, we're we're just you know spreading our wings and kind of for the first time you know being able to take a breather and be entrepreneurs and um, and reinvent. I'm talking to Paige and Gian, uh, uh, Megan, uh, the Megan boys, and uh, cool guys, real survivors, not just the survivors, but thrivers. Uh, proud to uh, tell them, uh, to call them, uh, I guess, new friends, maybe. And looking yeah. forward to meet, meeting you guys somewhere else another time. Thanks for joining me. We'll definitely have you back. So thanks you so much. If you guys, anybody needs a, an event, like a serious event, like you want to put together a serious event, uh, Megan boys are the guys you need to call. They've got a deep team. They're doing a great job. Uh, little kids up to adults. Um, I highly recommend them. So uh, hurry back. Do what you got to do. Back in a minute. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Welcome back, my dear friends. Appreciate you being with us here tonight. My name is Yona Bud. You are on the Road to Recovery. We're getting close to the end of the road for this evening. So listen, uh, I was out not long ago, as I am from time to time in the late evenings, and when I see people that are on the street, street people, quote unquote, homeless people, um, I try to give what I can. And sometimes I'm in better shape than others. I give a little more when I can and less when I can't. This particular night, I was uh, in good shape. I'd uh, uh, gotten, gotten a nice bonus for my, some of my, uh, my uh, coaching, uh, performance coaching work. And um, anyway, I was feeling, feeling pretty good and um, decided that I was going to make a fairly generous donation to this gentleman um, who was uh, sitting uh, over a grate, over a heat grate with his blankets, and he had, a, he had a, some kind of basket or, or a cart beside him. And, and I went over to offer him uh, the money, and he stopped me. And he said, can you just 
do me a favor and please put it down. And I said, yeah, man, sure. Like, what's up? He says, you're not wearing a mask. So good on him, right? So I wasn't wearing a mask. He didn't want me to get too close. But, um, yeah, unusual kind of situation. But uh, so recently I was dri- while I was driving through the countryside one night on my way to the speaking engagement, I hit a deer. As I stood in the middle of the road looking at the poor thing, tears filled my eyes. The terrified deer, a young doe, tried several times to get up and run away, but her legs were broken, could not. Then practic- pathetically she began to slowly crawl away until she was swallowed up by the dark forest. When a police officer arrived, they told him where the deer had gone, hoping that he would put her out of her misery, he told me, no, can't do that. Sorry, uh, it was on private property and coyotes will get her. Don't worry. Uh, and that was supposed to be reassuring. This was uh, written by um, our guest this evening, and she um, goes on to talk a little bit more in this article. And her name is Leah Den Bach. She's a contributor um, and a journalist. And, and one of the, you know, she goes on to talk that she learned about an important lesson that night, the lack of love. She was standing in the middle of the street trying to deal with this animal, and drivers just kind of swerved by her going by, and no one really stopped to say, hey, you know, like, you okay, you need some help. And, um, you know, obviously uh, they didn't stop, and she managed to do the best she could. Terrible experience for her. <clears throat> and she realizes that hardship on hardship describes, well, lives of people are experiencing homelessness during the pandemic. It's almost like, um, you know, like when you're trying to practice physical distancing, uh, but they're all crammed into shelters. Or, you know, we tell people to sh- wash their hands and they don't have access to places to, sh- to wash their hands and do so. Um, I guess this evening, as I said, is Leah Denbach, and she is a writer. Leah, thank you for uh, joining us this evening and for uh, spreading, uh, sharing some light here uh, in this very needed uh, topic. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure. And uh, thanks for being up so late at night. I hope it's a, a normal thing for you and that I'm not keeping you from your sleep. So, you know, it, it, it's just kind of an, I won't say it's obvious because it sounds sad But if I say it that way, but I mean, it just makes sense that if, you know, we were dealing with uh, people who, are, who don't have homes, we obviously call them homeless, people who are living in cardboard boxes under bridges and shelters when they can uh, in any environment, you know, burned out buildings and such. Um, obviously, during the pandemic, um, that must have just made life so much more difficult for them with soup kitchens and service areas and organizations that you know they would rely on a typical day uh, being shut down. Um, give me an idea of where this kind of article went uh, after this br- brilliant opening of uh, you hitting the deer. And I'm really sorry, by the way, that you had to go through that and deal with humanity as ugly as it is. Um, wh- where do you go with this article? Um, so in this article uh, that I published, Hardship on Hardship, I'm really trying to talk about the fact that the hardships that people experience in homelessness were facing before the pandemic have really only become much more difficult because of the pandemic. And in fact, they probably won't improve. So I'm really trying to highlight these issues. And I give some uh, firsthand stories of some homeless individuals that I interviewed uh, in the Toronto area giving their personal experiences of how the pandemic has affected them. And it's just really been horrific to hear. Um, Like a main thing that most people don't think of is because of social distancing, most people won't even give people experiencing homelessness money anymore. They really have no resources to get by and they often can't go into any buildings to use the washroom or to clean up. And so they almost have no way to use a washroom, no way to clean up, no way to get money. It's been almost unimaginable for them. So short of the physical distancing part because of people not wanting to approach them, um, I'm, I'd be glad, I'm proud to say I'm not one of them. But, um, you know, the, the 
it's not new. I mean, other than they're not getting the handouts, so to speak, quote unquote, um, they're still, you know, even before the pandemic, we didn't have really places for them to go into the washroom. You know, you couldn't, you know, I, I have a hard enough time going into McDonald's and saying, do you mind if I use the washroom? And I think I look pretty respectable. Uh, maybe I don't, but you know, so for, for homeless folks, um, they, they didn't have that opportunity even prior to the pandemic. I guess what scares me more, not scares me, what, hurt, what, what concerns me the most of what you just said, and, and it was a really well-written article, by the way, um, you, you talk about, you know, it, it's harder now during, you know, now that we're into the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, and likely not to change. So you don't think we're going to learn from, from, this, from, from this experience as, as a society and perhaps as a, as, as a government, uh, whatever, whichever government's at that level, uh, municipal, I guess, um, they, we're, we're, you don't think we're going to learn something here to, to, to make sure that we cover people into the future, like we're trying to learn about all the other things that come out of this pandemic? When I say uh, it's likely not to change, it's more in the context of I don't think that the situation that the people experiencing homelessness are in right now is going to change. Um, since it's become, their situations have become more difficult, and I don't think that their situations are going to improve at all and even can go back to the way they were before the pandemic. Uh, it seems as though unless... Um, us as the general public or the government step in to build, have more resources and affordable housing, um, these conditions just won't change and, and people experiencing homelessness this condition is going to go downhill and we're going to have more people experiencing homelessness um, because of the pandemic, of course. You know, it, it, they, we, it certainly appeared from the media perspective, and of course I'm one of them, so I, you know, I blame myself along with my brothers and sisters in the business, but... Um, you know, I, I, you know, the 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 reality is that you know we went crazy trying to get um, trying to get you know jabs into the arms of everybody and even providing you know um, mobile units for those that are homeless don't have a place to go uh, when we wanted to reach out to protect ourselves so to speak quote unquote um, we you know we did what we could we mobilized make sure we get jabs in arms of everybody that might make us sick. Um, so there was obviously a focus on people that didn't have homes to go to or, or locations that they could, you know, uh, register with and so on. So we, we, we mobilized really quickly. One would hope that that mobilization and one would hope that 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 um, I guess that reflection, that that light that we can shine on this experience should open us up to understanding that we can put, you know, mobile hospitals on the grounds of a parking lot in a hospital and no one says boo throw up tents with a bunch of soldiers in like hours. And the next thing you know, you got a hundred beds for emergency care. Why do we not have enough blank pieces of property and, and parking lots to throw up these same kind of tents and, and, and outdoor, you know, washing facilities and mobile washing facilities that people that can't afford homes or, or may not want to be in a home for their own mental health issues. Um, we, we certainly should be doing better. Why, why, why do you think that we're just missing it? What, what's, why are we so consumed by you know our own stuff and not and missing the fact that there's hundreds if not thousands of people sleeping on the streets tonight. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I'm not quite sure the the direct reason as to why people don't notice. But I think most people just get kind of caught up in their own lives, and especially when you're living in the city, it's easy to sort of blind yourself from the reality of homelessness and yeah. and really taking in how many people experiencing homelessness you're seeing on a daily basis and how hard their lives are. It's really easy to just go to the other side of the street or kind of walk by them when they ask you to speak with them. But I think it's really important to, to just sort of take it in and, and open ourselves up to that. And when I did that myself, I began to have a huge realization that there's a huge problem of homelessness and 
you see it every everywhere you go. And it's really important for us to realize that and to be helping these people. And because we could really be in that situation ourselves. Um, many people are very close and really anything could happen to you to be in that situation. I've met people like their house burnt down, their spouse died, their, their child died, their spouse committed suicide, like anything could happen to bring you into that situation. So I think it's just really important to realize any, any one of us could be there and we should really help each other get out of that situation. Well, Leah Danbach, appreciate that you uh, joined us here this evening. Uh, we'd like to put you on our hot list of people we can have back to talk about this uh, horrible uh, uh, situation that we've been dealing with for decades and decades, and that's people who are living without homes. And in your article, it says here a model that you like to live by, Mother Teresa's article, or writer Teresa's line, uh, if you judge people, you don't have time to love them. And I think that's exactly what this is about. Uh, Leah Danbach, a uh, writer, contributor, and seems to be an advocate for the homeless and uh, hoping to have her back on again. Stay with me. We'll We'll be right back. Yonabad, 640 Toronto. Now, Road to Recovery with Yonabud continues. Only on 640 Toronto. Okie dokie. We're just getting ready to end this uh, road trip for today, but uh, we've got some good stuff to share just to bring it in, uh, bring it all in comfy and cozy. And I'm sure, hope somebody will pick you up when we drop you off at the end so that you'll have a fun and enjoyable evening and weekend. Anyway, listen, if you need 911 help and, you know, you're like some of the people that we read about who don't really need a police officer but need someone to listen to them and provide the, the kind of care and support perhaps that a poor person that might have might be, you know, faced with a, a trauma, traumatic moment, difficult time, you never know, right? So for the next year or so, people in crisis in downtown Toronto who call 911 will, will get the help and they'll get better connected with the appropriate mental health supports that they need. So earlier this week, the Toronto Police, this is an article from a week ago, uh, earlier this week, the Toronto Police Services and Gerstein Crisis Centre, an excellent facility, launched a one-year 911 call diversion project, right? Service, uh, the new service, which comes in response to calls from mental health communities to uh, reform police responding, uh, police policing responses, excuse me, if you will, now seeing crisis workers respond to non-emergency mental health-related calls and so on. The plan is to embed, embed um, a crisis, a Gerstein crisis workers with Toronto Police Service Communications call centers for the next 12 months for 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Toronto Police said these two teams will work collaboratively but distinctively Distinctly, as TPS call takers will evaluate it from uh, 51, 52, and 14 divisions, uh, have no imminent risk and are suitable for diversion. Rachel Bromberg is the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network. It's a coalition of stakeholders in Toronto that started working to build a civilian-led mental health emergency response service in 2020. Rachel joins us this evening. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I know it's late at night, and um, I hope you uh, aren't having a hard time staying up or you're not missing something more fun. But we do appreciate you being here. Um, tell us a little bit about this breakthrough uh, opportunity and kind of your role in it and what you hope for and so on. Just uh, share with us, if you would. Yeah, so the crisis response pilot that's been launched collaboratively between TPS and the Gerstein Center, like, like you said, um, they're co-locating Gerstein Center crisis workers within 911 um, communication center so that if you or if, you know, someone that you know is in crisis and you call 911 um, and you say, you know, I'm in crisis or my loved one is in crisis, um, the initial TPS call taker will assess to determine whether this is a call that could be better served by a mental health worker rather than a police officer and will ask, you know, is, is would you feel comfortable being transferred to a Gerstein Center crisis worker? And if the caller 
is comfortable with that, then the Gerstein Center crisis worker can, you know, connect that person with resources, de-escalate the call over the phone, basically figure out what does that person need in this moment to stay safe and feel better without necessarily involving police where that where that is not where that's not necessary. One, one would think that, uh, you know, most people would think that this is something that should have existed long before now, uh, you know, just uh, mixing some uh, mix and match some folks that understand people in crisis along with others in, in a call center. Um, how long did it take for this to come to fruition and kind of, you know, what were the stepping stones along the way? Yeah, so the City of Toronto has been working really hard for the past um, year and a half, probably since the summer of 2020 in particular, to reimagine what crisis response services in the city should look like and trying to develop a more integrated model that can respond to people at different levels of crisis um, based on their particular level of need. So making sure that the right person with the right tools, the right situation can respond to the circumstance. And then, you know, Toronto, for example, already has a police partnered crisis team that pairs a police officer with the mental health nurse. So in some circumstances, that team will be the right response to a mental health crisis. In other circumstances, the call can be resolved over the phone entirely um, with a trained crisis worker. In other circumstances, you might not need a police officer doing a mobile response, but maybe you need a mental health crisis worker who can do a mobile response. So the city's been working on a number of initiatives to ensure that people in different levels of crisis can get the care that they need. You know, I do, um, certainly prior to the pandemic and, you know, a little bit more now that things are opening up, I did a lot of, uh, over my years, did a lot of crisis work in, in the street, a lot of intervention type stuff and finding missing people and so on. And, and, and over the last number of years, have had the opportunity to actually work with uh, up in York region and in, and in Toronto, uh, the city of Toronto, uh, work with uh, different um, police officer groups with, uh, that are also uh, police officers and a mental health nurse um, in collaboration in the same vehicle, uh, showed mm-hmm. up to, have shown up to a few suicide calls with me and so on. Um, I, I got to tell you, Rachel, I was not just impressed by the uh, hospital placed uh, uh, nurse who has the nurse practitioner with that expertise, but the police officers that were on those teams were, were exceptionally careful and, and mm-hmm. you know, much, much more, um, uh, much more, um, I guess, informed in their approach and in their counseling support and so on. So I, I don't think, you know, what's really what I'm seeing on the street level, at least, is that it's not just the, the the support people in the in the unit with the with the police officers, but police officers that are, that are agreeing to be part of these groups are also stepping up to be a little yeah. bit more a little more counselor and a little less uh, a little less police officer. But my understanding from the nurses that I've talked to that for the most part the police are there to protect them, not so much um, worrying about who they're going to call on. Yeah, so there are definitely some circumstances in which having a police officer and a nurse attend the scene is appropriate or necessary to ensure safety. Um, And the police officers on the MCIT do receive extensive training in being able to support people in mental health crisis as well. What is um, what is your organization all about? It's uh, it's called Reach Out Response Network. Give me an idea of what you do, how, how it was born and what your intentions and goals are. Yeah, so our organization is an advocacy-focused nonprofit, and our goal has always been to support the City of Toronto in developing um, alternative crisis response services that can meet people's needs um, without involving police where possible, uh, but recognizing really where there's a continuum of care provided and creating as many options as possible for people to get the kind of, the kind of care that they need from the person with, who is best suited for that in the moment. What's your... Um... Can I ask you your background, day job, training? Yeah. (laughs) 
So I've, I've been working in the mental health field for about eight years. I've also done a lot of crisis work. Um, I worked for a couple of years with the Youth Mental Health Agency. Um, I worked for a couple of years with CAMH, um, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, doing yep. trauma-informed de-escalation training for their staff. Um, cool. And basically through a lot of my work, I saw of the challenges that people in crisis experience and how people are often, you know, turned away from one service, told to go to another service, told to go to another service, and how it can be really hard to figure out, like, which service to access and to actually get in to see someone when you're in crisis. Um, And, you know, there can be long wait times. Um, So this is what really led our organization to advocate really strongly for a more integrated model of crisis support that can be accessible via the number that everyone knows to call, which is 911. Are you a a trained therapist? Are you an educator? Can you give me an idea, if you don't mind, about your sort of uh, training background, if that was appropriate? Yeah, so a lot of my background to now has been in peer work. Right now I'm doing, I'm at school doing my master's in social work and also my um, law degree. So I'm doing like a combined degree in law and social work. Wow. So what are you going to do, practice law and social justice, or are you just going to use your law degree to uh, prompt you so you can do a better, maybe work you know, work on messed up lawyers? I'm just uh, sort of kidding. But uh, that, that's, a, that's a, yeah, no kidding. That's a, I'll tell you something, get your MSW and uh, give me a call because we're constantly looking for good help, and you sound like you're just a, just an, an angel in disguise here. Um, so i got, I got to drill down here for a second. It's, just, it's in my head. So law and social work, what's the, what's the goal here? It's because your mother wanted you to be a lawyer or because it's just uh, you're somehow you've got a blend in mind that's going to be something powerful? Um, hmm, that's actually a really good question. Thank um, you. I think that law and social work are really complement each other in a lot of ways. Um, okay. A lot of people who are experiencing a mental health crisis, for example, are also running into problems that, you know, could require support from a lawyer. Um, And a lot of people who are running into legal problems are people who have also run into mental health problems. Um, So being able to bring the perspective of both of those, I think, is valuable. And I mean, like if you want to work at a legal clinic or if you want to work with like mental health law, like consent and capacity board cases, something like that. I'm not sure exactly what I want to do, but I have some ideas. (laughs) But that's um, amazing. I mean, you're just you're an amazing uh, human being, and it's just incredible that you're you're kind of stuck in not stuck in the middle, but you managed to find yourself in the middle of what I think is going to be an earth shattering, world changing event. Now that we can you know work towards this nine one one collaboration team, uh, save a lot of lives first of all, um, and de-escalate a lot of uh, potentially uh, very volatile situations that we've been reading about. You know, over the years of people who have uh, you know called police for help and didn't really end up getting help, ended up getting arrested instead. And I see you know I see a lot of patients in my practice that you know have uh, had you know psychotic breaks in the middle of a family situation. The family calls the police. All they want to do is get the kid or get the family or get the husband, get the mother, get some help, and they end up police end up coming and arresting them. Them because, in fact, I guess at some level did break the law and, you know, it goes on and on. So they're going to need someone like you to defend them. And I'm going to need someone like you to continue to talk to me about this stuff. So I'm going to ask I'm going to ask Corey Manuel, who's our producer here, to put your name on our list of regular guests, if that's OK, if you don't mind. And come keep coming back to you every once in a while when we think it fits your uh, your uh, your bailiwick, because I think you're onto something really special. Uh, you um, obviously your parents have done a great job with you, um, but you can tell them I said that. Um, and, you know, it, it's um, I, I think you're you're you know, if you're in the middle of this stuff, we can watch it together. We can analyze it together. And um, anything else cool that you've got coming up that you think you want to share? Just let us know. And we'll give you some airtime. How, how do you sound about that? Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you. 
Okay, terrific. So I'm talking to Rachel Bromberg. She's the co-founder of Reach Out Response Network. It is a charitable organization. They could use your money, your help, your support. So reach out to them in whatever fashion you can. How do they do that, Rachel? How do they get a hold of you? Um, people can go to our website at reachouttoronto.ca. That's reachouttoronto.ca. My guest is Rachel Bromberg. You'll hear from her again, I'm sure. Thank you all for listening to us this evening. We've uh, tried to share and be uh, as informative and impactful as possible. I'm really glad that uh, we're able to be here together and, um, and be on this road to recovery because it's a lonely place if you're doing it by yourself. So just remember, be fair to each other. Be care, to, care for one another. Hug the one you're with. Tell them you love them if you do. And if you don't, take it anyway. Talk to you next week. Yona Bud, 640 Toronto.